This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to the Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Morgan Micheletti. Dr. Micheletti is a cataract, refractive, and complex anterior segment surgeon out of Texas and posts amazing surgical videos on Instagram, which I personally love watching. Dr. Micheletti, thank you again for joining me tonight. Hey, it's my pleasure. Happy to be here. So let's get right into the case. You have a 65-year-old woman with a history of high myopia and radial keratotomy who comes into your office for evaluation of cataract surgery. During your technician's initial workup, she notes that the patient has a best corrected visual acuity of 2050 with a BAT of 2250. Her axial length is 29, and her exam is notable for pseudo-exfoliation material, a poorly dilated pupil, which is less than 5 millimeters, and a 3-plus nuclear sclerotic cataract. Now, I know this isn't our typical bread and butter cataract patient, but as we all know, these eyes are pretty common, not just in training, but beyond. So I think that this is the perfect patient to lead our discussion on complex cataract cases. So let's start here with her history of refractive surgery. How do you manage IOL calcs and preoperative testing for patients with previous refractive surgery? And what surgical considerations do you have for patients like this one? Great question and, and a very challenging case. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a very good case. So obviously this, you know, this 65-year-old woman uh, clearly sounds like she has a visually significant cataract. Um, and so now we're looking at, all right, what do we need to do about this? And, and like you brought up, you know, IOL calculations in these post-refractive patients uh, is a very important topic, something that kind of guides the outcomes, obviously. So just getting into some of what we see with RK, you know, we had the PERC study that showed there were about 60% of patients had these diurnal fluctuations, many with hyperopic shifts, and that the cornea steepens as the day goes on. And that's, that's kind of your classic board question. You get this nocturnal flattening uh, presumably secondary to the incisional edema that causes some flattening. And then as they wake up and the cornea dries out, it steepens and you can get these large fluctuations. And those fluctuations are very dependent on the number of cuts. So if you have something that's uh, eight cut, you know, if you, if you have an eight cut cornea you, to a four cut cornea, you may not get as many fluctuations if you have a 16 cut. I've seen up to 30 cuts. I mean, I've seen some pretty gnarly things. Uh, yeah, and then you get patients that get T-cuts. You have things that are going all the way from the central one millimeter zone all the way out to the limbus to ones that are just kind of in a medium type zone. And so the fluctuations are very dependent on the surgery that was initially performed. 
but it's hard to really measure this. We can't really ask patients to come in first thing in the morning and last thing in the afternoon and, and get a, you know, what's the difference and, and try to target that middle vision, it's, it, that middle kind of, of the road of the sinusoidal curve and their refraction. That's just, it's unrealistic. So we do rely on calculations and nowadays we're pretty lucky. I mean, we really do have great formulas. So for me personally, I'm using a lot of uh, just Barrett 2 and what Veracity and Iowa Master 700 or, you know, your um, Argos, other biometers have. And, you, you know, checking that box on, on just post-refractive typically is enough to get you pretty darn close. And in terms of using, uh, in terms of other values to use, you know, your, your central Ks in a, your central keratometry in, in a, in a post-RK patient is not thinned or changed unlike your post LASIK patients. So most of the time, those are actually pretty reliable measurements, especially in the central one to, you know, one to two millimeters and multiple devices can give you that reading, such as the Pinacam, for example. So using various devices, plugging those all in into to a formula that can, you know, I, I personally like to use um, kind of some integrated Ks using my veracity uh, to kind of spit out a a well-rounded number that I that I truly trust in order to use moving forward with my calculations. And I think that it's it's become less of an issue than what it was probably even 10, 15 years ago in terms of predicting with relatively good accuracy ELP in these patients. So there are some special considerations. The first thing is expectations. Anytime you're talking about IO calculations, and this is a this is a discussion with the patient from the onset, is these are challenging cases right? I mean, these are very challenging cases. These patients previously sought refractive surgery. And so they're looking for the best possible outcome they can get. That's what led them to get RK in the first place. And so setting realistic expectations and goals and what their outcome may be and the fluctuations that they will continue to experience is very important from the onset. A lot of these patients have dry eye or other ocular surface disease that need to be managed. And then really discussing separately, and this is getting a little further on into the discussion, but, but it's important from the onset is recovery time. A lot of these patients postoperatively can have corneal fluctuations that are worse and more significant over the next two to four months even. So it's really important to let them know that it's going to take some time for them to become more stable. So another thing to think about is IOL choice. And so once you have your calculations, choosing the correct IOL can, can be a challenge in these patients because you want to find something that has the best potential of giving them a good refractive outcome in many what's recommended many times is an aspheric IOL with negative SA, but it's not always going to be that helpful. A lot of these patients have very high spherical aberration and bringing down their spherical aberration by 0.17 or 0.26, you know, a lot of what these negative SA lenses are, it's probably not going to make that big of a difference versus a, say zero aberration IOL. Uh, or one with no refract uh, with no spherical aberration correction. So moving on, as we start thinking about these patients, one of the important things, and as you're sitting there in your evaluation, is figuring out where am I going to enter the eye. And that's that's a sometimes it's very easy, sometimes it's very hard. So in a four eight cut patient, it's very simple, right? You're going to enter in between the wounds as close to the temporal limbus as you can. That's where I prefer to enter. Um, but sometimes it gets harder as you get 12 cut or 16 cut. Occasionally, if it doesn't go all the way out to the limbus, you can squeeze in. It depends on your wound size, but you can squeeze in a two force sometimes in 12 cut if they're not perfectly symmetric. But many times we're turning to scleral tunnels, especially if we're talking about using a larger diameter IOL. 
especially if we're talking about a lens that requires a larger incision. For example, the light adjustable lens needs about a 2.8 millimeter incision and the ICA or the Aftera needs actually a 3.2 millimeter incision. And there's some other reasons why that is for the, for the Aftera in particular, but um, that's probably something for, for another day. Okay, well that definitely gives us a really great foundation for what we need to think about in post-refractive patients. But can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that you go through with patients that have pseudoexfoliation syndrome? Absolutely. First thing you want to look at is any sort of zonular instability. So I'm taking a look, seeing if there's any phacodenesis visible at the sun lamp, and they're not you don't always see it. I mean, there are times that it may look rock solid on set lamp exam. You have them move their, you know, look side to side and things look really stable, but intraoperatively, as soon as you put some pro, some, uh, as soon as you put some visco to your, uh, dispersive OVD of choice in that chamber deepens and you can tell that there's some zonular issues. So I think doing your best to assess that can give you a little bit of a heads up on how early you may need to use something like a CTR in the case of, of, uh, zonal instability. You know, if, if I think something's really unstable just from the get-go, I'm going to be looking to put in some sort of tension device in earlier rather than later in the case, if it's more of a prophylaxis or just, um, you know, something to give me to suture to later. You know, a lot of these patients are prone to capsular contraction. There's some data that shows three-piece IOLs can help when they're placed in the bag. Uh, but, you know, I think it depends on age and other factors. Again, this in this case, it's a 65-year-old female. So we have to imagine this lens needs to stay in place for 35 years. I like to think all my patients live to 100. But if this patient were 85, you know, maybe that maybe that's not quite so important because the chance of that happening in their lifetime is a little lower, just on average. So regarding intraoperatively, you can change to low flow or lower your bottle height or lower your IOP, which is what I do sometimes is I'll lower the, the IOP on my FACO machine just to try to reduce that initial posterior push that you can sometimes get as you first go in and kick on irrigation. Another important concept is creating a rexus in these patients. It can be very challenging, you know, especially if in a lot of these pseudorex patients, they don't dilate very well. So you can't always depend on femto. Uh, so you have to think about how you can create a, a rexus with which you're going to, a lot of times, if they do have some zonular instability, you'll start seeing those folds in front of the flap, uh, in front of your capsular flap as you're creating your tear, which indicate zonular instability and can increase your risk of a tear out, things like that. And so it's really important to maintain interior chamber pressure using your OVD of choice while you're creating a rexus in these cases. There are some other options like precision pulse capsulotomy. I would use those in caution in patients who have zonular instability just because it does take suction on the capsule. And while you can get away with it in small pupil cases, which is where I really like to use it, it does put some added stress as it kind of, as it puts added stress on the interior capsule if there's pre-existing zonular weakness. If there's not, it doesn't because everything's equally distributed. But in cases with zonular weakness, I have seen it kind of pull the bag a little more into the suction ring. So I would just use caution. Not to say that you can't do it, but just use caution with those. Um, then moving on in terms of nuclear disassembly, you want to do something that's very neutral on the zonule. So for me, for me on most cases, I'm horizontal chopping anyways, but I think especially in these patients, horizontal chop's a great option. You're not putting any posterior pressure like you could with a vertical chop, even though it's relatively atraumatic. Um, and, and a lot of times, even with sculpting, you're putting some posterior pressure on if you're doing a more old school divide and conquer. <laughs> so 
the other option is one other one other thought for nuclear disassembly in, in some cases like this, which which can be neutral in the zonules, is a my loop. But that's another thing where you have to use caution. While it can be zonular friendly, you have to be really careful as you as you pull that ripcord, because as you do, it can start pulling pieces with it that can get entrapped under the interior leaflet. And so then you have basically your hand, my loop, all connected to a couple fragments that are inside of a bag that you're then pulling. And so that can lead to some more zonular instability as well. So if you can do a well-controlled MyLoop in the bag with all those forces moving centripetally, then that can be very beneficial. But you have to make sure that you're not putting undue stress on the anterior leaflets and pulling everything forward as that can kind of go against what you're trying to do. You know, a lot of times in these, in these cases, I'm looking at when am I going to put a CTR in? Because I do like to put them in. And most patients who have very obvious pseudoexfoliation, I'm already thinking, all right, what point am I going to put them in? Many of the t- many times, I just put in at the end of the case. I go with my lens of choice, whether it's a toric or something else. Now, obviously, we may not be talking about that in this particular case, but just in general with pseudofakes, I mean, in just in general with pseudoexfoliated patients, I'm still open to put in any lens in for the most part, but I'm going to plan to use a CTR because it improves capsular stability long-term, and it gives me something extra to suture to should it become dislocated in the future. So in this case, if if she has zonular instability that I notice early, you know, I am thinking about putting a CTR in relatively sooner rather than later. Now, there's different types of CTRs and there's different sizes available. So, you know, there's two different ones that are FDA approved, the Mortar and the Alcon version, and most of them come in, in similar sizes um, and, and the indications are pretty similar. So for patients who have an axial length smaller than 24 millimeters, you want to put in a type 14, which is a 12.3 millimeter diameter uh, and compress it down to about 10 millimeters. For those patients with an axial length between 24 and 28 millimeters, you're looking at a type 14C or the 13 millimeter dia- uh, diameter, and that compresses down to 11 millimeters. Now, I will say, I, I for the most part will go with the type 14C unless it's a really small eye. Bigger is better. When in doubt, I think it's very reasonable to go big. Um, and, and axial length for me is is the main determining factor on which size I use. Now, there is a larger size, the 14A, for axial length greater than 28. So in this particular patient with an axial length of 29, this may be where I would ha- make sure I have that size CTR in the in the OR with me. Although I can say that I, I don't think I've ever put in a type 14A. That's a that's a very large CTR. Um, and, and there's a couple different types. The, the kind that I like is the preloaded one. It's just so much simpler, and you don't have to you don't have to worry. It, in terms of efficiency, it's just so much easier. You basically push on it and retract it, and then you're in the eye. Now delivering these things is a different story. So again, it all comes down to where you're actually implanting it in the case. If you pop open the Rexus and you're going to put it in right away, you're going to do it a little differently than you would if it were at the very end of the case. So a lot of times I'll put, if I get the lens out and everything looks great, I'll go ahead and put the IOL in and then I'll put the CTR in. And what I'll do is I'll use a Sensky in my offhand, which I'll grab that that leading eyelet with. And it's a very atraumatic way to insert the CTR. And it's a way to ensure that it's going where it's supposed to. Now, early on, if you just you just open up your your capsule, 
you know, that's where you may just implant it like you normally would. You're just going to slide it in and it's going to kind of snake all the way around. And, and that's perfectly fine. You will probably trap some cortex. And so there have been some other things that you can use, like the Henderson ring, which has these little uh, serrated edges to help or improve your cortex removal. I will say that I haven't had too much of an issue removing cortex in these patients that I put a CTR in early. It's a little more cumbersome, but it's really not too bad. It's, it's really not. Um, there's also modified CTRs like the Sioni ring uh, that have these little eyelets similar to like a CTS. It's like a CTS CTR combo. And that allows you to suture fixate the entire ring to the scleral wall. Uh, I, I prefer to use, you know, 6.0 to 9.0 polypropylene for these things, but plenty of people use Gore-Tex if you're going to suture fixate. And the, the indications for that would be really some sort of zoneopathy greater than four clock hours or so. You know, I think a lot of times you can get away with the CTR as long as it's four clock hours or less. But if it's more than that, you're probably looking to suture. I, I actually like to do a CTR then a CTS. And if I'm going to suture fixate, it just gives me a little more flexibility because I can I can independently place them. So I can get the CTR in the bag. I know exactly where my zoneopathy is. And that's where I can go ahead and put that CTS in and suture fixate it exactly where I want to. And I can also hold on to it with, with capsular retractors. So for me, that's that's what I, that's how I like to go about it. Uh, but th there's plenty of great videos out there that show doing it with, with multiple different ways. This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Do you ever use hooks? You know, you, you can. I, so I use hooks. Typically, I'll use an iris hook to hold a CTS. I think that provides a little more stability. I think the capsular hooks are relatively cumbersome. And I'd really like to minimize, especially in an RK patient or someone who's, I mean, it's just a lot of incisions that you're already making, you know. So I try to minimize the amount of, of incisions through a cornea that's already been pretty beat up with RK and things like that. So I, in general, I don't use a ton of hooks although I do use them from time to time. I've actually never seen anyone using capsular hooks yeah. yet. Not they're, they're big. I mean, they're, they're relatively big and kind of cumbersome. They, they really are. Uh, the, the, their angle has to be very different. When you're going down to grab a capsule with capsular hooks, it's a very different angle than when you're going in to, to grab an iris with iris, iris hooks. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's also something that you have to really kind of plan ahead and just your angle of insertion in terms of making your, your entry into the eye. Okay, so continuing on our patient with their multiple issues, this patient also had poor dilation, likely secondary to her PXF. What are some of the techniques that you use in patients with poor dilation? I know we already started alluding to iris hooks, but any others that you use that you like? Yeah, the main, the main thing I use is really the X1 expand from um, a company called Diamatrix, which is actually local to me, which is kind of cool. But I, I really like it. It's a nitinol ring similar to a MyLoop. It, it holds the iris open in a very atraumatic fashion. And you can actu actually grab the capsule 
and connect it to the iris essentially using the, the X-Band. In fact, the I think the video of the year for 2019 for ASCRS was, I think Alan Crandall showed um, a case of this where he, he kind of grabbed both the bag and the iris in order to support it while he was doing the surgery. So it, it's been done. And it's a really cool way to do it. I've only used it that way once. I typically like to support them independently. I just think it gives me a little more flexibility. But obviously, we, you know, most of us have all used Malugans and, and they're great. I, I think there is nothing wrong with the Malugan or, or um, what were some of the other ones? There's like an eye ring. I think Dr. Canabrava has has his new uh, pupillary expansion device. So there are so many options for pupil expansion that you really just have to find what fits your comfort and what you feel in your hands causes the least amount of trauma to the iris. Because that's really that's really what I when I look at what I'm going to use to dilate a pupil. I want something that's going to be the least traumatic in terms of insertion and the least traumatic in terms of what it's going to leave behind. And so sometimes with certain things, you can see some trailing pigment and all this stuff. And it just, you're like, oh, that, that I don't want to see that. Now, I think there are some drug options as well. I like, I mean, I, I think Omidria can be great. I have used it quite a bit and have had good luck with that. You know, and then the, your whatever preoperative regimen you find works for you, whether it's, you know, some atropine or if you're going to use some sugarcane in the eye or intracamel epinephrine. You know, all of these things can can be great surrogates as well because you want to try to get that pupil as, as open and stable as you can before needing to expand uh, something else. Now, for me personally, it has to be a pretty small pupil for me to put in a ring. Um, I'm pretty comfortable operating through a three millimeter pupil. Uh, it takes a little longer uh, sometimes, but, you know, if, if it's an extra minute or two, then <laughs> it's not too bad. An extra uh, minute or two. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I'm intrigued. Now I'm like, wait, yeah, how? Sure, I want sure. to do that. How do you make your 5.5 millimeter Rexus through a three mil pupil? Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways you can do it. Now, in this case, it's a little more challenging because they have pseudoexfoliation and zonulopathy. But a lot of times a great option in these small pupil cases is to use a precision pulse capsulotomy because you can just put it right in. So this is Zepto. You can just slide it right into that pupil right under that pupil, you don't have to worry about the iris. You center it on the Purkinje reflex and bam, you're done. You've got a great centered rexus and you come out and you carry on with your case. You know, you can get some, you can get some viscodilation. And so if I can get a, if I can viscodilate, because a lot of times that's when you're going to get your best dilation is while you're doing your rexus. And if I can get at least, what I should have said is it, it is challenging to do a three millimeter <laughs> pupil with a rexus and a three millimeter pupil. But a lot of times they come down to three millimeters when you go to do your FACO, right? So if you can get at least four millimeters and you can use a second instrument through a side port to kind of push the iris out of the way, whether it's a Kuglin or some sort of um, some sort of chopper that, that has something in order to do that, such as the chopper I designed, for example. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you can kind of trace that. And so you, you kind of, just like you would do a torque in these cases, right? So you've seen pupils come down to three millimeters and you still got to go out and check your torque marks. So same thing, you can use a Kuglin or something else. And you've done a Rexus thousands of times, right? I mean, so you know where you are. You don't always have to, I mean, yes, you want to be able to know where your Rexus is, but at a certain point you do have a feel for where you are. Now, in this case, I would exercise extreme caution trying to do this with minimal visualization in a patient who has some zonulopathy or pseudoexfoliation. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. This probably isn't the best case for that. So no, in a patient like this, if they they weren't ideally dilated, especially in a complex case like this, this is probably one of those examples where I definitely would use some sort of hardware to to dilate the pupil. I, I, I have, you know, I've never regretted I've never regretted ever using Tripan or ever using some sort of pupil expansion device. I've regretted 
not using them, right? So I, I always err on the side of caution. You don't have to try to be a hero, you know, with, with a small pupil, but um, it is possible to do. And, and I think that there are certain patients where it can make sense to do, but, but yes, obviously always, always do what is, is the most comfortable for you. That's certainly the mantra that we're taught in training too, is like, I've never regretted using TriPan, but I have regretted not using it. Exactly. It's a good mantra. Um, So switching gears a little bit to our next problem, which is the high myopia, high axial length. What are some of the pre-intra and post-operative considerations for patients like this with a high axial length, um, such as this patient? Yeah. So I think think an important thing is to just check for a PVD. I think that's a nice, easy thing to do for most anterior segment surgeons. You know, I, I, in a patient with a 29 millimeter axial length, I'm still probably having one of my retina partners take a look at this patient beforehand, just, just to make sure, especially before cataract surgery at 65. Um, you know, for, for someone who's a lower myop, I'm not quite as worried, but 29 millimeter axial length, I, I, I'd really like them to take a good look at the aura, you know, in the the surrounding area. Uh, Next, really lens calculations, right? So we already talked about this. This is a patient with RK. Now she's an RK patient with a very long axial length. So just making sure, and again, most of our generation, most of our current generation IOL formulas do really well with this patient, even as they are without any sort of modifications. You know, one thing that is really nice in these patients is a lens like an LAL. And that's because you can, you can get close with your calculations. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to fret about, okay, I may be a quarter of a diopter or half a diopter, even a diopter off. Cause you know that you can fix it. You can fix it in post as they say. Right. But the, the issue is it only goes down to a 10 diopter. So if this is a 29, a 29 millimeter axial length eye, even if the K's are relatively flat, you're still probably looking around ish a 10 diopter lens. So it just depends on whether that'd be an appropriate lens for the patient. And you could also think, well, Maybe I'd go down the path of like an IC8 or the Aftera, right? That the, the new lens that was just FDA approved from AccuFocus. So the lens I like to use in, in general in patients who are super high myopes is the AR40 or the AR40E and M. It's just whether it's a meniscus lens or not. It's a great three-piece lens. It gives you lots of options, especially in these patients. So, you know, in this particular patient, if they weren't a candidate for an LAL or maybe like the IC8, just because I know that it's going to, both those lenses are going to really help this patient in general, both with the fluctuations and giving them time to recover before we do any treatments with the LAL to just taking advantage of the pinhole optics uh, with, with the Aphthera. But in general, I think an AR40 is a good option here if it's you know something like a 5-diopter or even a minus 5-diopter lens, and that just depends. Now, in surgery, so intraoperatively, one thing that we see Quite frequently, it happens. It, it does happen, and sometimes it takes you by surprise. Is Lynn's iris diaphragm retropulsion syndrome, and so essentially, you see it a lot of times when you first go in with your FACO and kick on continuous, and the chamber just goes whoosh and deepens. The patient takes a deep breath because they're feeling the sudden burst of pressure. Uh, and the important thing is to, before you enter an eye in any of these patients, have that second instrument ready to go in the eye. And sometimes you can try to go in like as soon as the right hand's in, or whatever your FACO hand is go ahead and get under there and just, just start aiming to get under the iris just to try to prevent that. Because the other thing, you know, if it happens in a patient who doesn't have zonulopathy, it's painful and it's not ideal, but it is unlikely to cause some other issues. In a patient with zonulopathy, that can bust a few more zonules and leave you with some more issues during the rest of the phacos. So trying to prevent that from the onset. So 
you know, going in the eye, making sure that you have a good fill with OVD and then going in the eye and, and slowly, you know, you can turn, this is where you can turn down your irrigation or your IOP and, and, you know, slowly kind of moving into that mode just to try to minimize that. Um, so going in, and that's another option too. So, so you can, some people will say, oh, go in dry, have your second instrument ready to go right under the iris, or even just go ahead and lift up the iris a little bit. Those are, those are all some things you can, you can try. Now, in terms of, uh, RD risk in these patients. Some people will say avoid silicone lenses in these patients. I I don't feel that strongly about that. Most patients, you know, I mean, if you think about patients, about these patients RD risk, even in a 29 millimeter eye, if they've had a PVD, it's probably 1%. And then of the patients who need silicone oil, you know, a lot of times that's redetachments or PVR cases, things like that. It may be 1% of that 10%. So one in a thousand, give or take. So I wouldn't exclude an LAL patient just because they're a high myope, just because they may one day need silicone oil. Because we've all gotten so good at IOL exchanges and, and doing Yamanis and other, you know, sutured IOLs that I think that the IOL choice would be the least of the patient's problem <laughs> if they needed silicone oil. You know, I mean, most of the time, you're not getting that, you're not going to get that same visual outcome that you were expecting with that kind of a lens in the first place. Right, right. But yes, typically the only silicone IOL I would use in a patient like this would probably be the LAL. So unless you're, unless they're a good candidate for that, I, I don't think it's, it's too big of a concern. Do you ever use AC maintainers in these high myopes or change your flow settings or not really? Not really. I mean, I, I've seen people do it with an AC maintainer. I, I think it's a reasonable thing to do. I personally don't. I mean, I, again, I just kind of watch out for that uh, retropulsion syndrome. But, you know, for the most part, as long as you can avoid that from the onset, it, it you're, you're good. And once that lens out, you know, you really don't have to worry about that too much anymore unless, you know, sometimes you can get it if you, you can get the same thing once the, even when the IOL is in and you go back in and the iris can, you know, deepen the whole chamber and everything else. Uh, but uh, for the most part, once you get through that initial, you know, initial time, you, you kick on irrigation inside the eye, then, then for the most part, you're, you're in good stead. So final moment here, could you summarize kind of what your plan would be for this complex cataract patient with the history of high myopia and an axial length of 29 with the pseudo exfoliation and zonular weakness, the poor dilation and the history of radial keratectomy? So in this patient with, with, you know, less than eight incisions, it's really easy to make an incision on the side. And it, so you could probably get in even up to a, to an easily, a you know, one, eight, something big enough to do an LAL without a scleral tunnel. And I think that that's a reasonable lens if it fits the patient. So if it's 10 or higher that they require, I think that's a reasonable option. Again, it's a three piece lens. So you always could pull it out of the bag if there was an issue and Yamani it or refixate it using other, other methods. Uh, it, it just gives you a lot more in the way of options. You know, I think if they weren't a candidate for the lens, let's say they were, they required like a Plano lens or a minus one, I think the AR40E is a great option. Again, it's a three-piece lens, and, and I think a three-piece is a very reasonable option for this patient. If I am placing a single-piece lens, so let's say I'm placing an Aptera lens, let's say that, they're, that they need a 15-diopter IC8 or Aptera, you know, depending on how much space there is and I can get a three, two in the cornea. Otherwise I'm doing a scleral tunnel in that, you know, I think that that's going to give the patient a lot of benefit in summary. It depends on, it depends on a lot. And really it comes down to what, what lens power does this patient require? If they required something that I could give them an LAL or uh, the aptera, which is the pinhole optic, 
then I think that's a very reasonable thing to do. Now, if I'm doing the LAL, which is a three piece, or I'm doing a, or let's say that they're not a candidate for one of those two, and I'm going to use another three piece like an AR40 or the AR40E, I may or may not place a CTR. It really depends on what I see. But if I get a three piece in the back, I'm relatively happy. If I am going to go with like a regular monofocal IOL uh, or the the ICA, which is the Aptera, then I'm probably going to place a CTR. If it's a single piece lens in the bag, then I'm going to place a CTR as well. And so for this patient in particular, you know, uh, it would be a long conversation, right? I mean, look, this is a challenging case, not just from a surgical standpoint, but from a what lens and what do we target standpoint. I think targeting a little myopia from the onset would be a very reasonable thing to do. Um, just because, you know, not only do these RK patients tend to drift with, with hyperopia, but also, um, you know, we, we know that they've got a higher chance of a more hyperopic outcome being a longer axial length anyways. So I, I, I think I would target just a little bit more myopia in general and then have a long discussion that this is going to be a complex case. Depending on whatever lens we end up using, I may or may not need to suture fixate something. And so I think for me, I would plan on probably, again, three piece in the bag or single piece with CTR and then possibly a sutured uh, segment using a CTS. And for me, it'd be some sort of pro, you know, uh, proline, like 6 proline. Um, and, and I think all of those discussions ahead of time are the most important things because it's all about managing expectations in these patients. And, and that is probably what I would do. I mean, I would hope that they were a good candidate for an LEL because it's just, it's put it in and done with a 1.8 millimeter incision, um, except for except for important, important point here, uh, this patient has small pupils. So they actually wouldn't be a candidate for an LAL because their pupils are too small. So exclude everything I said about LALs because now, now I remember when you said that they have poor dilation as it's, as, you know, so no, actually. What's the pupil minimum for an LAL? Really, you, you need at least six millimeters. I mean, it's, you can do it with 5.5, but you need six millimeters in the clinic because when you're doing the light delivery device, you have to be able to see the whole optic um, the whole optic because that's what you're applying all your, your light treatment to, to activate those, those macromers and monomers. So, uh, so in this patient in particular, I'd probably be leaning, I'd be deciding between, uh, the Aptera, the IC8, that pinhole optic and, um, and probably an AR40 depending on the power and, you know, then playing it by ear in terms of what I need to do, whether I have to suture fixate something or not. Let's say I saw, if I saw no phacodinesis whatsoever, I'd probably still put a CTR in at the end if it's a single piece. And if, if you know, it looks okay, leave just a three piece in the bag. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention, there, there are sometimes when, <laughs> I know this is a great summary, um, great, great closing here as I'm, as I'm bouncing all over the place. <laughs> no, <it's> but, great. <laughs> but one, one other thing that, that people have talked about before is making larger rexies in these patients. And I don't really love that idea because if you did have something go wrong and you wanted to try to optic capture or you needed to do some other maneuver, it really limits your options. So I think if you can, you know, that just goes back to staying very neutral in your nuclear disassembly in terms of, of stress on the zonules um, is so important. So you can try to utilize that bag because that that's that's really where the lens is supposed to be. So that's where, you know, you, you trying to maintain as much of that structure as possible and a, a size that you could optic capture if you need to is is I think really important. No, that's a great point. I know some people do like to make it bigger, especially because of the contraction that they're worried about postoperatively, but that's a great point. Well, this was a heavy case, but it was a wonderful review of a lot of the things that we have to start thinking about with these complex patients. 
Now shifting gears one final time to a little less eye heavy topic. Before we end the episode, I do ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? Wow. That is a, that is a good question. I think, I think it would be Frank Sinatra for me. Oh, wow. I, I do. You know, the, the man has style. and I, I, I really just would hope that through one dinner, he could impart some of that on me. <laughs> just rub off on me, sir. Yeah, just a little bit. I, need, little bit. I need your suave. <laughs> That's great. Well, Dr. Micheletti, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Dr. Ball. It's been my pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. See you next time on The Pupil Pod. 